was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so excited to welcome my guest, Artistic Director of San Diego's Old Globe Theater, Barry Edelstein. Barry has held that position since 2012, but before that, he won a Rhodes Scholarship, served for five years as the Artistic Director of Classic Stage Company, and was the Director of the Shakespeare Initiative at the Public Theatre. Among his directing credits are Julius Caesar with Jeffrey Wright, As You Like It with Gwyneth Paltrow, The 27th Man at the Public, Richard III with John Turturro, and many more. Right now, you can see his directing work in Roundabout's hit production of The Wanderers at the Laura Pells Theatre. The play is funny, moving, and features a fabulous cast, including Katie Holmes. It's not to be missed, and you can find tickets at the link in the episode description. And now, without further ado, here's Barry Edelstein. So, I would love to begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? Well, um, I grew up in suburban Jersey, um, not very far from New York City, town called Fairlawn. I was born in Patterson in the wonderful Patterson, New Jersey. And I went to public school. And at that time, this was, I was born in the mid 60s. Um, at that time, the public school system had very good theater programming, budgets and facilities and wonderful teachers. So I was very blessed to grow up in a part of, a part of the world where I could sort of take theater seriously. The people who taught were New York theater artists who went out to the suburbs to teach as their day job. And we did all kinds of wonderful things. I also was very fortunate to have parents who loved the theater. And, and you know, on a weekend, once every two months or something, they would pack the family into the car and come to Broadway and see a show. So I had it in my life um, from a very early age. You know, there's this famous saying that um, nobody ever goes to the theater for the first time. They're only ever taken to the theater for the first time. And I was taken to the theater by teachers, by parents, and I got the bug. And was your ambition always to be a director or did you start wanting to be an actor? Everybody wants to be an actor. <laughs> Everybody wants to be an actor. The people who do the, the accounting at the Old Globe, they started out wanting to be an actor, right? And then eventually you figure out, oh, well, maybe that's not the path that's going to make the most sense for me. So I was an actor in high school and in college. And in college, I had a really wonderful teacher, a guy named Vincent Murphy, who's now at Emory in Atlanta. And I would talk to him and ask him questions about plays that he was directing. And he said to me, you know what? You really think like a director thinks, you know, because I was much more interested in the whole play than I was in the little scene that I was in. I was much more interested in kind of what was going on in other people's work than I was in my own. And this teacher recognized in me a kind of brain that he thought might, might make sense as a director. So I started taking directing classes and never ever once looked back <laughs> just just found oh yeah this suits me this suits my mind this suits my heart 
this suits my soul. This is really what I want to do. So from, you know, kind of late teens, early 20s, I guess, well, I guess I would have been 19 or so in college when that happened. I just said, oh, this is what I want to do and have been doing it ever since. Right. And did you move to New York right out of college? Or? Um, I actually went to graduate school. So I, I went to college at Tufts in Boston. And then I got a Rhodes Scholarship. So I went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and I spent a couple of years there. And then I, then I spent a year bumming around in London uh, before I came back to New York. So, so I was in England and sort of wandering around Europe a little bit for a while before I came back to New York to start my career. And what did you find was different about studying theater in England? Well, I didn't study theater. I studied English oh. literature. I studied, I studied Shakespeare. So I have a I have a master's. It's called an M. Phil, very fancy sounding, but basically it's a master's degree in Shakespeare from Oxford. Um, so I studied the plays as literature, did a lot of theater, traveled around England, seeing theater. Went to London all the time. Went to Stratford on breaks from school. I would go to Europe and go to you know Paris or uh, Poland or Germany and go see theater. It was fantastic, but. I didn't study theater per se. What happened was when I got back to New York, I got a job working for Joe Papp at the public theater. And he, at the time, the, the public was doing his famous Shakespeare marathon where the idea was they were gonna do all 36 Shakespeare plays in six years. It ended up taking 12 years. <laughs> so, uh, so Joe Papp, I, I knew him in the last few years of his life, hired me to be the dramaturg on this series of Shakespeare plays. And that kind of was my drama school. I was assisting directors who were really at the top of their game. I was around major actors. I was around Joe Papp's thinking about Shakespeare and about how theater relates to a city and a culture. And that really kind of was my drama school. Oh, yeah. And what did you sort of learn from Joe Papp about the art of directing and, and of artistic directing? everything. Um, you know, uh, uh, Joe Papp is my hero. I have a picture of Joe Papp next to my uh, desk in my office at the Old Globe. And I, I, I look and go, oh, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, what's the right thing to do? Um, basically, uh, the idea that the, the theater belongs to everybody in the city, belongs to the entire population, is Joe Papp's big and beautiful idea that Shakespeare specifically is not only for English people, is not for highly educated people, is not for rich people, but is for everybody. And that the lobby of a theater company in a city like New York should look like the subway. Um, right. and, and, and he figured that out. He figured out how to make the theater widely accessible to everybody, free Shakespeare in Central Park and his mobile unit, which the public has since revived, um, really was, came, was born of an impulse that's kind of fundamentally democratic in nature, saying that this is the birthright of everybody who's in this city in the same way that a free public library is. Um, and that idea has really, really informed um, really all my work ever since. Um, the big idea that this art form that we're doing um, really is meant to make community, to be shared with community, and to be understood by the widest swath of the population that we can possibly manage. We fail often, you know, the, 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 the audience of the theater is still um, woefully exclusive, 
but we're making inroads and, and, and really trying to understand how to share this art form more democratically and more widely. Um, and I think that's a credit to him. That's, that's his great, great legacy to the American theater. Oh, yes. And how did your production of The Merchant of Venice at the public come about? So um, we were, you know, the, the marathon was taking place. Um, the, the, I don't know, they were two thirds of the way through. I had worked on a bunch of the Shakespeare's. I was teaching at the Juilliard School at the time and teaching Shakespeare. So I had a lot of experience with actors trying to make the language clear. Joe Papp passed away in the early 90s. Uh, he was succeeded by Joanne Acolytus and I stuck around. And then she was succeeded by George Wolfe. And George had just done Angels in America, of course, to huge acclaim. And Ron Liebman played uh, Roy Cohn and won a Tony for it. And he said to George, I, I want to do some Shakespeare and I want to play Shylock. So George had this guy there, me, this young guy. I was, I don't know, 28, 29, something like that, 27 even maybe. And, um, and he said, why don't you do a workshop with Ron on this play and we'll see how it goes. And I did and, and, and everybody liked it enough to want to do it. Oh, yes. And having worked at and been part of the public theater under so many different artistic directors, how do you feel that it's sort of changed from the era of Joe Papp to now Oscar Eustace? And I think Oscar is a giant, and I think Oscar is um, an absolutely superb heir to Joe Papp. I spent five years working very, very closely with him, and I think Oscar really, really understands that basic ethos of the public theater and this idea of the culture belonging to everybody. E each one of Papp's successors understood that idea in a slightly different way, inflected that idea in a slightly different way. It really was kind of a mentor and disciple relationship. You know, George Wolfe had his own point of view about it. Uh, and Oscar certainly, certainly has his own point of view about it. But I think the work that they're doing in community, uh, projects like Public Works, projects like the Mobile Unit, um, the wide, wide, wide variety of platforms on which they produce theater really channel that fundamental, basic, clear idea of Joe Papps in a very, very beautiful way. I, I, I think the public's an immensely exciting place. I loved my time there, and I think Oscar's doing a phenomenal job. And having directed everyone from Ron Liebman and Billy Porter to Gwyneth Paltrow in Shakespeare plays, do you believe that anyone can sort of master the language of Shakespeare, that any actor, even without explicit training? I think training really, really helps. I think that there are some very basic principles about how the language is put together, that any actor who's got an ear for language of any kind can really quickly pick up. But I do think you need to know the basics. Um, it's interesting to me that musical theater actors, you know, Billy Porter, I think that Merchant of Venice was his first job out of school, right? I would like more credit for having <laughs> Billy Porter his first job. Um, but there you go. Happy to be part of it. He's a genius and he's wonderful. Um, but musical theater performers who have a natural sense of phrasing, who understand how uh, the rhythm of language can be as expressive as the meaning of the words themselves, make phenomenal Shakespearean actors. My whole career, I've really seen that musical theater performers are great at Shakespeare because they have that automatic sense of the expressivity of language and the musicality of language, and it's great. But actors who've grown up doing, I don't know, uh, television or, or 
contemporary drama simply need a very small set of tools about how Shakespeare's language is put together. And then they can really take off. And it has to do with uh, what the verbs are doing in the language, which do a very specific thing in Shakespeare. It has to do with how you handle the verse line and what you do at the end of the verse line, which does a very specific thing in Shakespeare. It has to do with Shakespeare's uh, addiction to words that are opposite each other, you know, to be or not to be. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of York. And if you take an actor who's got any kind of instinct for language at all, and you say, here are four big ideas that you need to think about that are gonna help you unlock this language. It's like watching a flower bloom. Ah, uh -huh. that's wonderful. And how do you approach casting, be it inside or outside of Shakespeare? Um, that's a really great question. You know, the process is kind of uh, elaborate and Byzantine. <laughs> And a huge part of it is great casting directors, you know, um, uh, Jordan Thaler and Heidi Griffiths at the public are spectacular. They know everybody. They know what great Shakespearean acting looks like at the Globe. We work with all kinds of wonderful people, Tara Rubin, Dave Caporelliotis, um, Elaine Aldaffer, a lot of different casting directors. And you really rely on that casting office to help you know who's out there and also to broaden your mind about what the part might be like you know you may have a fixed notion of the metabolism of the actor that you're looking for but the casting director will say well yeah but i have this guy in mind who's actually a little slower than that but i think it might be magical and it's like any other collaboration it, it sparks an idea that you would not have had yourself and then you go through the mechanics of it you know right reading people bringing people in, calling them back, watching tapes. Now that's all anybody's doing, watching tapes. I, I, I feel like we the, the era of live in-person auditions may be behind us, sadly, uh, thanks to our friend COVID, <laughs> uh, our enemy COVID. Um, but, you know, and then it's about alchemy and talent, you know, and, and I have found 30 years of directing plays professionally that you see somebody in front of you and you either believe them or you don't, you know? Something exciting happens or it doesn't. And you have to allow yourself to be open to that magic moment that's happening in front of you. And uh, that's kind of how it works, you know? And it always works that way. Eventually you end up with a group of people that you think, yeah, I really believe them and they seem really exciting and there's chemistry among them in a great kind of way. So I wish I could say there's a science to it, I, I don't think there is. I think it's like any other artistic process, subjective and and um, you know subject to fits of inspiration and and um, and and even in a certain sense, kind of whimsy sometimes, where an actor will come in and just make you laugh, and you say, "Wow, that's exciting! I never knew that that moment was there." Great, come come along. Right, and. An artist that you've worked with a lot, mostly as a playwright, is Steve Martin. And how did you first meet him doing Wasp? And oh my God, um, you've done your research. <laughs> nice, nice job. Um, so uh, when I did, uh, oh yeah, 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 a long, long time ago, I directed a production of All My Sons, Arthur Miller's All My Sons, at the Williamstown Theater Festival. And my friend, Mike Ritchie, who was the artistic director there, subsequently the artistic director of CTG in LA, great, great guy, asked me to come and do a revival of All My Sons. And, you know, we thought ah, I was just going to be another sort of summer stock revival of this old chestnut. 
But it turns out that Arthur Miller was around and because he had another play going, a new play going on at the festival and he liked it. And that brought Sam Cohn, his agent. You know that name, Sam Cohn? Yes, I do. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sam Cohn was a giant. Sam Cohn was um, Mike Nichols' agent, Jackie Gleason's agent, Woody Allen's agent, Meryl Streep's agent, Arthur Miller's agent, you know, all these people. Um, and he came because he represented Arthur Miller. He came to see this All My Sons and liked it and, and saw me and I was a kid, you know? And he said, do you have an agent? And I said, I don't. And so he represented me. And that's how I got to know Steve Martin because he was a Sam Cohn client. And Sam said, uh, Steve's got this one act play that he wants to do. And, you know, maybe you might enjoy working on it with him. I was like, yeah, sign me <laughs> up. Um, and that began what's now a 25-year collaboration with Steve Martin. It's fantastic. One of the great gifts in my life. Oh, yes. And what led you then to later on commission a play from him as an artistic director? And So I was running Classic Stage Company in the 90s and early 2000s. And Classic Stage Company, people know it as CSC down on 13th Street, small place, doesn't have a lot of money. <laughs> And its job was to do the classics. And the classics are big plays, you know? That's why people always do Waiting for Godot, because it's got right. you know, four, four people and a, and a boy. Um, but, you know, if you want to do Moliere, God knows Shakespeare, unless you're going to do a, a, a reduced kind of Shakespeare, you know, like the brilliant fiasco theater company does and do it with six people. But if you want to do a big production of Shakespeare, you need an awful lot of people. The same is true for... Uh, you know, any of the canonical classical authors because they just come from a theater tradition that was resourced in an extremely different way. So I was always looking for small cast classics. And I knew this German play from the early 1900s called The Underpants in German is Die Hose. And, um, and, 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 you know, it's like five people and it's a comedy, it's really funny. And the translations of it that existed were very academic, very dry, and really didn't do the comedy of the play credit. So since I had done a couple of plays with Steve, I called him and I'm like, hey, listen, here's an absolutely insane idea. There's this German play from 1912. And I wonder if we commission a literal translation from the German, if you might want to adapt it, I think you'll find it funny. And he famously, and this is a true story, said, what's it called? I said, the underpants. He said, I'm in, <laughs> uh, which, which I love, right? It's true. That's what actually happened. So we got a, a, a German scholar to do a literal translation of the play, heavily annotated. And I gave it to Steve and Steve turned it into this play that's like, to my incredible pleasure, produced all over the world all the time, you know, just because we thought, you know, and we produced it at Classic Stage Company, it was a huge hit. So that's, it was, it was, it was born of necessity. And to his credit, because he's got such a curious mind and, and oops, and an adventuresome mind, he decided, um, yeah, I'll give that a try. You know, why, I mean, why Steve Martin needs to mess with a hundred year old German play is anybody's guess, but he, he loved it and did a brilliant job with it. And when you come into a theater like CSC or the Old Globe as an artistic director, what is the process like of sort of getting to know the audience for the theater and then basing the programming around that? That's a great, great question. Very different in New York because I had been living here all this time. And I really understood 
the specific niche that CSC filled in the ecosystem of off-Broadway theater and of downtown theater, right? At the time I was running CSC, there were very few places doing classics, a handful. You know, there was a, the wonderful Theater for New Audience, of course, was going then. And uh, every once in a while, uh, you know, obviously the public was doing Shakespeare. Every once in a while, you'd, you'd see a place like Irish Rep or somebody like that do, you know, or I don't know, Circle in the Square. Were they still going to Shaw? You know, there were a couple of places around town that would do classics. But CSC really clearly understood that that's what, it missions, that's what its mission was. And so there was an audience that already existed and an identity for the theater that had been established by Carrie Perloff and by David S. Bjornsson very, very clearly. So it didn't really take much of an act of imagination for me. I was an audience member there myself and I understood a lot about what the place was. Moving to San Diego was an entirely different scenario, right? Because I'd never lived there. It's not my hometown. And suddenly this guy from New York shows up with a whole set of references and, and a cultural framework and an idea of theater. And I had to spend a lot of time learning the city and learning the institution and learning the population. And I, and I had an idea because I did know a little bit about Jack O'Brien and what he was doing there. I understood the kind of Shakespeare they were doing. I understood the theater's history of sending musicals to New York. Um, and I had the list of plays that it had produced and I had a lot of smart people on the staff and I had a lot of board members that were giving me information. And I spent a year just going on a listening tour, just talking to people, you know, around town at Trader Joe's, in the mayor's office, on the staff, uh, you know, in the neighborhood where I lived, trying to understand sort of the vibe of the place. And with the team uh, on the staff put together a season and and that allowed me to really understand it even better. You know, uh, uh, what are they, are they gonna find, how are they gonna react to Terrell McCraney? How are they gonna react to Samuel Hunter? How are they gonna react to Noel Coward? How are they gonna react to Shakespeare directed in a more aggressively conceptual way than maybe they right. had seen? And over a couple of years, I, I started to figure it out. I remember I asked Oscar for advice and he told me that when he took over the public, he asked Nicholas Heitner, who was the artistic director of the National, for advice. And Nicholas Heitner said to him, it's going to take you three years to figure out how to run the place. So give yourself three years. Don't be impatient. And Oscar said to me, it's going to take you three years to figure out how to run the place. Give, because he, it, it was turned out to be totally true for him. It took him three years. And he told me that. And that's exactly what happened. It was wow. three years of trial and error of, you know, oh, Bright Star, that one really worked and ended up going to Broadway. But this other one didn't quite. And right. oh, no, that Shakespeare was a little too aggressive for this audience's taste. But that one wasn't. And oh, they really loved this play because it had these particular qualities to it. But they didn't like that one. And also they responded to this play that I didn't think they would, that I thought might be too far out, but oh, wow, they really went for the ride on that. So it's this kind of conversation that takes place where the artistic director puts something forward and the community votes with their feet and, and tells you, you know, and you can see how many tickets it's selling and what the, what the temperature in the theater is at night. And, and so you kind of figure it out. That was my experience anyway. And to go back for a moment to CSC, I'd be curious to know, was there ever a play that you put on that you thought ended up being sort of too esoteric or? 
That's a really good question. Um, yeah, um, well, we did the, the, one of my absolute favorite projects in the, in the five and a half years that I was there is we did a chamber opera by Philip Glass. Now, you know, Philip Glass lived in the neighborhood, you know, uh, uh, CSC's on 13th Street, he lived on East Third, you know, so he's an East Village guy. And, and I knew that there'd be an audience, it's 180 seats and, but it was, it was, it was a, it was a chamber opera based on a Kafka story uh, called In the Penal Colony. It's the darkest, <laughs> most violent. It's this little, it's this little story about capital punishment, you know, and Philip Glass made this chamber opera out of it. And, you know, it's like, you're out of your mind. Like who, like why, why would anybody? So, that, you know, in the end, Philip Glass's reputation carried the day and it was, it was very well reviewed. And the opera audience came in and filled the seats that the theater audience wasn't in a hurry to fill, wow. you know? But yeah, that was, when I look back on that, I think you were out of your mind. <laughs> Not because it wasn't great, it was. It was an extraordinary piece directed by Joanne Acolytis. And we brought in this chamber, uh, uh, this little string quartet from Seattle that was this one of the world's great ensembles for Philip Glass string music, you know, uh, these incredible opera singers, but it was bonkers, you know, and dark, dark, dark. And I remember, I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, saying, like, uh, that's what you think a musical is? <laughs> you're, you're, you know, like, you're completely, how about, you know, why don't you just do Guys and Dolls? Maybe <laughs> like it a little more, you know? Anyway, so yes, that was the most esoteric of the pieces that I produced at CSC. And when a script comes across your desk as an artistic director, even after deciding whether or not to produce it, how do you decide whether or not you should direct it or whether to bring in someone else? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I really, uh, as far as directing goes, I, I just follow my nose. You know, when I read a play and I have a kind of visceral relationship to it, I will start to pursue it. And I might, and I might say... Uh, you know what, in the end, the way the season is coming together, I shouldn't do this one, or I'm not the right one to do this one, or even though I love the piece, it should be somebody with a different kind of sensibility than mine. But basically, uh, I, I go totally by my gut. I, I'll, I'll pick up a play, fall in love with it, and just say, I've, I've got to do it. Um, now, there's a whole other whole series of considerations. When you, we, we do 15 shows every year on three stages. So there's a huge kind of complex matrix of what kind of box office these shows need to do, how big they can be, how expensive they can be, the different flavors that they need to have because the, the Globe's audience is, you know, quarter of a million people, quarter of a million tickets that we sell every year. And so there has to be uh, a little bit of this and there has to be some comedy and there has to be some drama and there has to be something old and there has to be something new and there has to be Shakespeare and there's gotta be something musical. These days, post-pandemic, there's got to be a lot to laugh about, you know, so there's a, there's a, or, or people just aren't going to come, you know, it's like all anybody wants to do right now is have fun. And so our programming is sort of flexing to, to reflect that. And that goes into selection of directors. Now, obviously, uh, in the case of a new play, the writer has immense influence there. And so, you know, when we, when we ask a playwright to 
get to, to allow us the world premiere of a play, that playwright will often say, well, this is the director that I want. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, if I don't have real familiarity with that person's work, I'll go go out and get it. You know, I'll make myself acquainted with it. So we follow the we follow the um, the the playwright's lead. With a classic, it's more sort of that same process of casting. Like you know, we we last summer did a revival of Dial M for Murder, ah. right? The nineteen fifties, you know, War Horse. And we commissioned um, Jeffrey Hatcher to sort of blow the dust off of it and give it a little freshening up. So he did that. And he wrote this absolutely, you know, completely honoring the 50s spirit of the play and the plot, but just freshening it up a little bit. And so I said, okay, let's do it. And I knew that what, no matter what else it had, it had to have a director who really had, who really understood style, who really understood theatrical style. And so at the Globe, we had produced the work of uh, Stafford Arima a couple of times. And I just thought that's, that's a guy who gets style. Uh, that's a short list at the moment in the American theater, real, you know, real play directors who understand style in the kind of, you know, uh, Alan Schneider kind of way or in, uh, or in you know, uh, 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 Orson Wellesy kind of way, you know? And, um, and Stafford really has that, has this just sense of elegance and dash and flair and, and a deep understanding of how a script works and how it needs to be expressed. So it's those kind of things. It's the subjective, you know, oh, it needs somebody who's got a sense of comedy and okay that's this list of people or you need somebody whose work is kind of gnarly and really uh sort of fierce and that's this group of people and you you put it together in the way that you cast an actor and how much do you keep in mind when programming the old globe sort of reputation as a launching pad to broadway while at the same time keeping in mind the audience in san, san diego and uh, massively, um, you know, those, those, those we, we now, we're about to have our 26th Broadway show, oh. which is Bob Fosse's Dancing, uh, which opens March in next, next month, you know, uh, and, and I've, that will be my sixth in the time I've been at the Globe and, and the theater's 26th. So it's a huge piece of the place's identity. Audiences in San Diego want to feel like they're in on the ground floor of something special. Um, audiences in San Diego love a really high-end musical done by the best craftspeople in the country. They're a very important part of the financial model of the theater, not only because they sell a lot of tickets, but also if they succeed post San Diego, they can mean a lot to the theater on the back end. Right. Um, and we've been really fortunate because we're doing high quality material. You know, I think about Allegiance, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, uh, Bright Star, uh, Almost Famous, which, you know, had a, had a sadly too short life in this very complicated moment on Broadway, deserved better than it got. And Dancing, you know, these are, these are substantial, uh, rich, rigorous, uh, dense pieces that um, uh, sort of uphold the, I, I, I'm going to use the word loosely, but sort of literary reputation of the Old Globe. You know, we're a Shakespeare theater. So it's not the place where you would expect to see Mamma Mia. You know, <laughs> it's a place where you, you expect that the musicals you're going to see have a certain kind of density to them that are of a piece with 
the kind of new writing that we do and the classics that we do. And I've been really lucky. Um, you know, I will tell you that Broadway at the moment is in a real hunker down mode. And as I look ahead to the next two years at the Old Globe, I'm frankly not seeing the flow of projects because right. I think commercial Broadway is really, really still bleeding from the brutality of the of the shutdown over the last couple of years. So there's just there's a little bit of caution out there, um, yeah. which has me a little nervous because. <laughs> It's a big part of our operation. And there are some absolutely wonderful projects that are on my desk, and I'm hoping that they're going to work, but way fewer in number than in 2019, when, uh, the stack, when the stack of potential projects was much, much higher than it is now. Oh, yes. That's very interesting. Yes, scary. <laughs> and doing, as you said, like 15 shows a year at the Old Globe, how involved are you able to stay in each one, or how involved do you like to be in each one? So I have a wonderful staff, uh, associate artistic directors, associate producers, uh, director of new plays and dramaturgy who, who has her own associate. So we have, a, we have a pretty big staff of people whose job is the care and feeding of the artists who come to the Old Globe, right? We really pride ourselves on taking incredibly good care of writers and directors, but designers and actors and everybody who's working. So um, they represent me and I, I'm around. I'm, I, I visit rehearsal all the time. I hang out. I check in with people. I see what's going on. I mean, you know, right now I've been in New York for six weeks. So um, I think the people who are working at the Old Globe now might go, you're, you're what? <laughs> I don't see you. I'm, you're, you're, you're lying. But even from here, uh, the team at the Globe is keeping me very, very well informed. So I do get pretty involved. And then depending on the artists who are there, you know, like when we did dancing, uh, Wayne Salento and I just really found a very special relationship and a very special language together. Wow. And, and he really opened himself to a conversation about the piece with me. And it was tremendously exciting. That doesn't happen all the time, um, but that happens a lot of the time. And when we premiere a new play, uh, you know, the, I think writers and directors want, are happy to have somebody smart and articulate watch a run through and say, I didn't understand that. I'm not sure why you're doing that. That's brilliant. That's exciting. So it's, it's that kind of thing. I, 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 will, I will watch run throughs and then sit down with the artists and have a conversation. I'll watch a dress rehearsal, sit down with the artists and have a conversation. Um, and sometimes that's very deep and very close. You know, when Steve Martin was at the Globe with Bright Star, you know, we had this, at that point, 20-year relationship. Right. So I was very closely involved in that one. doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. And this is, again, going back a little bit, but how did you ultimately decide to leave Classic Stage Company? Um, I was broke. <laughs> I was exhausted. And I had fallen in love and decided that I wanted to invest my time and energy in the person I was in love with and wow. not in taking out the garbage at the theater company <laughs> at one o'clock in the morning. Um, so that's what happened. Uh, uh, months after I left CSC, I got married and started a new chapter in my life. So it was purely personal, just decided, yeah, five years, it was really great. Um, it's also brutal and I don't have any money and I don't have any time and I want to do something else. And then how did you come to end up back in the public theater? 
I went to my, my wife at the time was acting. And so we loaded up the truck and we moved to Beverly, you know, Hills that is. And we went, we went out West and we went to LA and uh, she was, you know, acting and booking work in Hollywood. And I was banging my head against the Hollywood sign, trying to, trying to break into episodic television at which I failed wretchedly and miserably. And so I ended up teaching theater at USC and I directed something at the Mark Taper Forum and I directed a couple of regional gigs. And so I ended up right back in the theater, but based in LA. So one day I got a phone call from Oscar whom I had known because I had directed a play at Trinity Rep when he was artistic director there. And he said, hey, the guy who's been running Shakespeare at the public has just left and I need somebody to come and run Shakespeare at the public. And I know you're in LA uh, failing to get into television. So why don't you come back to New York and do that? And so my wife and I had a long conversation about it and decided that that's what we wanted to do. And so um, I, I, you know, it was a life-changing moment and a beautiful moment. And um, I'm really grateful to Oscar for that opportunity. So that's, that's what happened. He called me up one day, said, you want to come to the public? And I was like, yeah. I think I will. And there it was. And what do you think as a Shakespeare expert and as someone programming Shakespeare about the sort of reinventions and adaptations of Shakespeare plays? Do you think that they should be presented just sort of in their original form or? I think there's room for absolutely all of it. I think there's there's room for absolutely all of it. My own particular approach to Shakespeare is very rigorously based on the language that he wrote. So I myself am not terribly drawn personally to wholesale adaptation that 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 uh, that completely remakes the language. Now, you know, that's different from say Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead or Fat Ham, right? Where it's clearly taking the play and adapting it as a as a whole new story and a whole new thing. I don't mean that. Um, I, I, I've seen, you know, I, I think about the fantastic Mary Wives that was in the park, where I don't know what percentage of the language, a relatively small percentage of the language was the original Shakespeare, and uh, the contemporary adaptation of it managed somehow to capture something authentically Elizabethan at the same time as being authentically contemporary. And I found that really exciting. Um, and as an audience member, I loved it. And as a man of the theater, I love that it's there. My own particular practice though, is to hew more toward the original Shakespearean text, which of course one adapts because there are words in Shakespeare that 400 years later, don't make sense anymore to a contemporary audience. So you you cut them or you invisibly change them. But when I do Shakespeare at the Globe and when I've done Shakespeare in my other uh, artistic practice, it's much more the text that we've received from 400 years ago. And my job is to figure out how to make that communicate um, excitingly to a contemporary audience. So, you know, short answer, yeah. I mean, you know, which is not to say at the Globe, we, we have a program we call Globe for All, which is very much like the public's mobile unit where we take Shakespeare out on a tour to communities that really traditionally don't have any access to the arts. Right. You know, 
in, in, in remote rural parts of San Diego County. We go to prisons, we go to homeless shelters, we go to refugee centers, we go to veterans organizations, we go to um, schools and, and community centers in neighborhoods that tend to be um, uh, low-income neighborhoods where there aren't a lot of uh, traditional cultural amenities, or you know, one might say legacy white cultural institutions like the globe itself. So we go out into the community. And when we do that, we take a, a 75 or 80 minute Shakespeare that is very, very heavily adapted, not rewritten necessarily, but, but in the process of condensation becomes an adaptation of the script. So that's very much a part of our practice in that venue, but in the big outdoor festival theater that's like the Delacorte uh, in San Diego, we stick with Shakespeare's own words pretty primarily. Right. And when you're working at the public or at the Globe doing sort of year by year Shakespeare, how do you decide which play would be the best for the sort of climate of that year? Yeah. Um, well, it's a lot of conversations with directors who have a list of what they want to do. Right. Um, so, you know, we have people that are very important artists in the life of the Old Globe. You know, Kathleen Marshall is going to be out there this summer, and she always wanted to do Twelfth Night. Um, so we said, great. We had done Twelfth Night eight years ago. Rebecca Tashman did a gorgeous Twelfth Night at the Globe maybe eight years ago. So that feels like it's enough time, you know. Because the thing is that Shakespeare wrote 36 plays, 10 of them are incredibly famous and the ones that everybody always wants to see. <laughs> 10 of them are so obscure as to be almost impossible to produce. And then another 10 are kind of like, ah, oh, we'll do measure for measure, why not? Everybody will figure out a way to do that. Yeah, we'll do all's well that ends well, well you know. But King John, Timon of Athens, Titus Andronicus, Cymbeline, those are hard to do. They're, they're very obscure, they're very complex. Audiences don't quite know how to respond to them. On the other hand, you just can't keep doing Midsummer Night's Dream all the time, right? So we have a list, we have a list, and that list shows how frequently we're doing these plays. And so each summer, so another group of plays starts to percolate up to the top of the list. And then a director has an idea, or we might say, um, you know, as we have this summer, we, we're going to do two comedies because it's just what the world wants. Right. So this summer, Merry Wives of Windsor and Twelfth Night. Uh, other summers, we've said, you know what, um, when, when politics in the United States was going in a certain direction, I think we need to talk about leadership. And so we did Richard II. Uh, so it's stuff like that, you know, what seems to be blowing in the wind and what artists have great ideas and have we done the play recently? And that's how the season comes together. And you mentioned uh, Time of Athens is one of the ones that gets done a lot less, but yeah. what is it like for you to direct that at the public and sort of make sense of it? One of the great experiences of my career, Richard Thomas, and I began a, a friendship and a collaboration with that production. He's one of the great Shakespearean actors we have. People don't really know that about him. He's, he's, you know, he's an amazing classical actor and can do anything. And we've worked subsequently a couple of times. Um, I just loved the idea of dealing with a Shakespeare play as if it were a new play, 
you know, um, because nobody knows it. Nobody knows what's going to come next. Nobody knows how it's built. And so it was really fun to get together with a group of artists and say, let's treat this like a play that nobody's ever heard of before, because people sort of haven't heard of it before. And, and it was about, you know, that's a play that's about money and about how greed just destroys people. And it was right around like Madoff time, you know, Bernie Madoff time when we did that. And so there was this sense in the air of kind of one of the, you know, we get that periodically in New York, you, some crisis happens and you get reminded of how money destroys people's souls. And it just seemed like this amazing meeting of the cultural moment we were in and this 400-year-old play that was simultaneously old and brand new. And then Richard gave just a galvanizing performance in the middle of it that made it really memorable. So I loved that. I also had um, Curtis Moore, who now writes songs for Mrs. Marvelous Mrs. Mizell. Um, he wrote a, an electric guitar score for that production that was just off the chain great. You know, it was just like rock and roll Shakespeare score that was so cool. So yeah, I, I loved that. I loved that show. And another show you did in New York, not a Shakespeare, was The 27th Man. Yeah. And what drew you to this play? And what was it like sort of doing research for it about this time period? And um, so that's a play by Nathan Englander, uh, the 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 great fiction writer, one of one of the great fiction writers that we have in America. And based on a short story that he had written some years earlier. And uh, I, I went to Oscar when I was like four years into my life at the public. And I said, you know, I'd love to get a break from Shakespeare somehow. And he said, you know, Nathan Englander has this play that Nora Ephron, who may she rest in peace, was on the Globe's board at the time, was trying to develop with Nathan. And, and Oscar, you know, knew I'm Jewish, knew that I'm very passionate about Jewish themes and said, why don't you take a look at this? And, you know, as we were discussing earlier, I read this play and I was like, okay, I'm in. Um, it's a play based on a very little known true episode in history of Joseph Stalin liquidating the Yiddish literary scene of the Soviet Union. In the early days of the Soviet Union, Yiddish flourished because the, the Soviet powers thought yeah, it'll be a good idea to have all these regional languages flourish as long as the politics that they're expressing are Soviet and support the regime. So there were theaters, there were magazines, there were libraries, there were schools, all in Yiddish. And then suddenly Stalin changed his mind and decided these guys were now an enemy of the state and rounded all of them up in 1952. And uh, there was a uh, you know, a show trial, and then he uh, had had these guys murdered. And the play tells the story of the last day in the lives of these eminent Soviet writers, uh, Jewish writers. So that that was I did that at the public ten years ago. That was the last play that I directed in New York City prior to the Wanderers. Uh -huh. um, and then we did it at the Globe to tremendous acclaim. And then. Uh, Nathan wrote another play that the Globe premiered six months ago that I directed called What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank. And we're both hoping that that's going to show up in New York sometime oh. in a really wonderful, funny, funny, funny play. So yeah, Nathan 
Uh, Nathan, like Steve Martin, like Anna Ziegler, is somebody I have a, a, a long time, deep collaboration with. That's uh, wonderful. He's, he's just a great writer. Right. And before we do talk about The Wanderers, which I am curious about, I'd love to ask about another play you worked on that had to do with Jewish themes, this time on Broadway, which was The Merchant of Venice. Yes. Some part of the public. And yeah, so... so um... I remember getting this text from Oscar Eustace one day saying, I'm having a meeting with Al Pacino in an hour. What Shakespeare should he do? <laughs> and, uh, and so, because I was Oscar's Shakespeare guy. I'm like, uh, you know, put together this list. And on the list was uh, Shylock, which he had done in the movies. And, and he wanted to revisit. So the public uh, produced The Merchant of Venice in Central Park. Um, with Pacino as Shylock, Lily Rabe as Portia, and the, the brilliant, brilliant Dan Sullivan, who has been a real mentor to me. We wow. did many, many shows together during my five and a half years at The Public. Um, and it was just hugely successful and uh, transferred to Broadway. Um, you know, did a, I don't know, 12-week run, 16-week run on Broadway, uh, of, uh, of which I was a producer. And, um, and it, was, it was great. It was just American Shakespeare at its strongest and finest. And Pacino was absolutely terrifying in the role and heartbreaking in the role. And um, yeah, it was a special experience. I, I, my job involved sitting down with Pacino for hours and working on the text with him. So, you know, I had these just day after day after day of just the two of us being in a room working on the Shakespeare together was just glorious. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, so as you mentioned, you've been in San Diego for quite a long time directing plays just on the West Coast. And so what made you decide to come back to New York with The Wanderers? Well, I received an invitation from Todd Haynes, you know, uh, well, The Wanderers premiered at the old, we commissioned it. Anna Ziegler had a play at the Globe called The Last Match, um, which made its premiere there. That's when I got to know her. Uh, it's about tennis, love and tennis and ambition and fulfillment and life. And The Roundabout produced it in New York, gave it its New York premiere. So there was this pipeline established between the Old Globe and the Roundabout and Anna Ziegler. So after the success of the last match, the Globe commissioned a play from Anna, which turned out to be The Wanderers. And we produced it in 2018 to tremendous acclaim. It was very, very successful. And the Roundabout said, well, let's do that. Have another Old Globe, Anna Ziegler combination. And it was scheduled for 2020. Um, and the pandemic just stopped it dead in its tracks. And the roundabout, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to simply for the roundabout to simply say, let it go. That's from another time. That's a different kind of material than the world is, you know, is doing right now. But to their credit and specifically to Todd Ames's credit, they stuck with it. And uh -huh. so um, we set a date for 2022, and then the pandemic created some problem around that. And then here we are finally, finally, five years later, opening the show. Wow, yes. And what do you think makes the show especially relevant now, even especially after the pandemic? I should say, what do you think the pandemic has sort of added to it? 
Well, Anna is a really, really special writer. You know, I, I, I think, you know, I, I say frequently, Charles, because I read a lot of plays, we're living in a golden age of American playwriting. The, the caliber of writing on the American stage at the moment is extraordinarily high. And there's, there's smart, rigorous, deep, innovative, formally challenging work going on um, a lot in New York and also around the country. Anna lives in a very special corner of that golden age, which is that she is a poet and a novelist and a, a, a prose stylist who also writes plays. And so there is something about the language and construction of Anna's plays that have, and I use this word in only its positive sense, a literary sense of dimension and complexity to it that I, I find unique. I, I, don't, I don't hear her voice in very many other places in the American theater. Uh, among this wide variety of excellence, there's something very specific to Anna's voice that has to do with just the pleasure of the English language being wrought artfully and beautifully in by her extraordinary pen, right? So that's th the thing that I think is the most sort of uh, healing and wonderful. I I've been watching the audiences in the week that we've been, we're a week into previews and just the quality of listening and the quality of enjoyment about the language itself and what it's doing is very, very important. The themes of the play though, I think are also really compelling for this moment because it's a play about people who can't seem to recognize the beautiful things in their own lives. They can't seem to see that they're very, very fortunate and that they have beauty and they have miracle right in their own lives. They can't see it, so they're looking for something else. And they've got like a pebble in their shoe that is saying to them, ah, there's something that's not right. There's something, if I could only look to the next person, if I could only look to the next relationship, if I could only look to the next opportunity, then I might finally find happiness instead of learning to recognize it right in front of their faces. And I think that's what resonates about the play so much, which is we've all been through this terrible time and politics are crazy and there's a lot of fear and anxiety in the world. And it's really nice to be reminded that if we simply take a moment to look around the circumstances of our own lives, we will find beauty and we will find something wondrous and miraculous if only we're willing to recognize the miracles that are right within our reach. That's what the play is trying to talk about. And, and I think that's why it's resonating so powerfully at this moment. You know, that and a big movie star, in the movie, <laughs> you know, that helps too. Yes, right. And how did you make that sort of casting decision and and casting the entire play? Well, it's like I said, Jillian Cimini at the Roundabout, their wonderful casting director, had a list, and the character's a movie star, so um, so there were a lot of movie star names on the list, and we started talking to agents and saying, "Yeah, hey, uh, how real is this?" And the list got really short really quickly because there aren't too many movie stars of that ilk you know, uh, young women who are, you know, uh, uh, that famous and that prominent who really have made a commitment to the theater, but Katie has, you know, she's done theater frequently in her career and she was, turns out, looking for a play. So it just was serendipity is that here's this part that she's absolutely perfect for. She happened to be looking for a play to do. She wanted to get back on stage and she read it and she liked it. We had a conversation we hit it off and realized, hey, let's try it. 
and she's so good. She's fabulous in the play. She's she's not only skillful and talented, but also she's got this charisma. It's just so fun to see a real movie star play a movie star. It just brings this sort of hall of mirrors excitement to it. And she could not be kinder, more open. It's been, it's just been great. It's just been great. That's great. Yeah. And so what kind of things would you like to be working on next? Would you like to stay in New York or do another project in New York? Or? Well, I have a job. I have a job to get back to and a family <laughs> right, to get right. back to in San Diego. And I and and we have a lot of really exciting stuff coming up at the Globe. I'm going to be doing this gigantic uh, production of Shakespeare's Henry the Sixth plays, parts one, two, and three, wow. that are the only Shakespeare plays that the Old Globe has never produced. So we're finally going to complete the Shakespeare canon in the summer of '24. Um, okay. We are, our, our, our community-based work is the envy of the national field, the work we're doing in prisons in particular. There's just no other regional, there's no other institutional theater in the country doing what we're doing with incarcerated populations. Um, and, you know, I've got this podcast that I, that I did called Where There's a Will, which is with um, Pushkin Industries, which is Malcolm Gladwell's media company. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an eight episode series about the places Shakespeare turns up in the world other than in the theater. So Shakespeare in prison, Shakespeare in the lives of autistic children, Shakespeare in the lives of teenagers, Shakespeare in the lives of politicians, Shakespeare in religion. Um, and I had this absolutely wonderful time writing, researching and recording this podcast. So that's been great and has made me think I want to do some more writing, which I'm going to think about doing when I get back to San Diego. But yeah, I'd love to come back to New York. I mean, it has been so great to be here. I've missed it. Um, and, and, and you know, it's fun. And theater audiences here are the best in the world. The talent is extraordinary. And the importance of theater to the culture, you know, San Diego has that too. It's a theater town. Theater really matters in San Diego and theater really matters here. And it's just fun to be part of it in that way. And I'm really, really enjoying being back. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know the practicalities of it. My 10 year old son is, uh, he's not so happy about me being gone for two months and I'm not so happy about being away from him. But um, but we figured it out, and and this this project, Anna is so special, and these these five actors, Sarah Cooper, who's amazing, and you know uh, Eddie K. Thomas, Dave Clasco, Lucy Freyer, it's just an amazing company. So if all the experiences that I might have can be as beautiful as this one, sign me up. I'll be back in a jiffy. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. I really admire listeners. Thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by veteran stage and screen actor Brian Batt. In addition to his tenure on the hit TV show Mad Men, Brian is also a veteran of the stage, having performed on The Great White Way in such shows as Cats, Starlight Express, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Footloose, Beauty and the Beast, Sunset Boulevard, Lacajo Fall, Susical, and Saturday Night Fever. His off-Broadway credits include Jeffrey, To My Girls, and Forbidden Broadway Cleans Up Its Act. You won't want to miss this interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.